Hi, this is Jim Brangenberg, the host of the I Work For Him radio show. Thanks for listening to the I Work For Him podcast, where we discuss our workplace as our mission field. The live version of our show can be heard each weekday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern on AM 570 and 910 WTBN, locally in the Tampa Bay area, and worldwide on the web at letstalkfaith.com or iHeartRadio. Our website, iWorkForHim.com, has great resources on how you can learn about how your workplace can be your mission field. And also check out the sponsors that bring you the radio show each and every day. And while you're there on I Work For Him, click on the I Work For Him Nation flag and prayerfully consider joining the I Work For Him Nation. Join thousands around the globe praying for their coworkers and employees by name each and every day. That's IWorkForHim.com. I Work, the number four, Him.com. Remember, your workplace is your mission field, and in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Thanks again for listening. I hope this broadcast will make an impact on your life so that you'll never look at your workplace the same again. Let's get to today's show. You've tuned into the fastest one hour in Christian talk radio. You know, as we are four days away from Christmas, I really wanted to highlight a super fantastic point of view that I gained just the other day, from one of our missionary friends who hails out of Papua New Guinea. She sent in her newsletter, and she's an amazing writer. Her first name is Lisa. I won't say her last name in case she's trying to protect her, uh, who she is. But she talks about Christmas, and she says, this is her words. We celebrate this time of year as we think of the word taking on flesh and becoming a man, a baby that came to die. This baby came to wage war. He didn't come to establish the exchange of gifts. He is the ultimate gift, but this gift came with a bigger picture in mind. He came with the sword to fight a battle that we couldn't wage, a battle we couldn't wage or win. He came to wage war on all that enslaved us, on all that was killing us. He came to defeat sin, Satan, sickness, and death. We look at this cute little helpless baby in a manger. We sing praise to him, and it all seems warm and cuddly. We know it was a manger filled with straw and a barn, so so not not so nice and picturesque in many ways, but the picture still includes a cute and helpless little baby. And yet, he came to wage war. He came not to bring peace, but a sword. That's not what you expect when you look at a baby. Swaddling clothes and soft skin and cuteness is what comes to mind, not war. And yet, had not he come to wage war, we'd still be enslaved to sin and death. Yes, we still die, but it holds no sting for believers. He came with a sword, and so we have hope. We have peace with God while the world itself lacks true peace. I keep thinking of the baby in the manger in a new light this Christmas. A baby with a sword who came to wage war. Yes, he might be cute and cuddly as he lays in that manger scene, but I also see a king. A king with all the power and authority to rule and reign forever, to defeat all of his enemies, who also happen to be our enemies. He defeated them all. That cuddly baby in the manger waged a war and was victorious, celebrating him this Christmas as king and victor, and not just as a cute cuddly baby in a manger he certainly started there but he was ever so much more thank you to lisa my missionary friend in papua new guinea what a great perspective that is for us as we head into christmas jesus didn't come to be a cute cuddly baby he came to wage war for you and for me and without him waging that war we'd have zero hope thank god for jesus thank jesus for all that he was willing to give up on our behalf And thank you so much to uh, all of you that are listening to I Work For Him today. Generosity. Is it a God-given talent? Does everyone have it? 
Is it catchy or is it learned? Is it supposed to be natural for every Christ follower? Well, today we've got John Cortinez. He's the COO of Generous Giving, generousgiving.org. John Cortinez, welcome to I Work For Him. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be with you today. You know, we just got a minute till the break, so I want you just to start just a little bit with how did God surprise you in 2016? You know, one of the greatest one of the greatest blessings of 2016 for me was uh, a great surprise of being able to be mentored by Howard Dayton on the topic of generosity. Um, anybody who may have heard of Howard, he, he founded and worked at Crown and Compass Financial Ministries. But I learned from him that our generosity and our stewardship is first and foremost an opportunity to grow in relationship with Jesus. Everything we do with money, we should be viewed through that lens, and that was a great lesson this year. John, as you had an opportunity to go to Harvard, what did, why did you go to Harvard in the first place? Sure. So I was a petroleum engineer in South Louisiana. I was in my early 20s earning six figures, and I was very much a saver. So I was socking away as much money as I could, and I had dreams of earning a lot more and kind of climbing the corporate ladder. And the best way I sought to do that was to go get my MBA degree, go to graduate business school. And so I was, I was very fortunate and blessed to get in at Harvard. And so at uh, age 25, I headed off in that direction to, to get my MBA. Okay. But, you know, not just everybody goes to Harvard to get an MBA. When you went to Harvard, what were you thinking you were going to I mean, What were you going to do with that degree? What were you going to do with that master's degree and that MBA? Well, sure. Yeah. You know, the, the most common career paths are consulting and banking, and, and those are great. But I actually wanted to stay in my industry. So I was in oil and gas, and there was a program at Chevron that takes about 1000 resumes every year, at least in the year that I applied. And they ended up giving out six internships. I got one. They gave three job offers. I got one of those. And it was a program that would send me overseas, earning three hundred to $400,000 a year as an expat. Um, and so that was the life that I envisioned. And it was um, not necessarily the lifestyle, but again, I was a saver. So I wanted to just sock away as much money as I could so I could retire as fast as I could. So that was kind of my vision was, you know, this, this is going to be a great two years. I'll learn a lot, but I really want to go make some money. That was what was driving me. So the experience at Harvard, though, took an unexpected turn for you. I mean, so you're, you're in this program. You are getting prepared to go make a half a million dollars a year or whatever overseas working in the oil and gas industry, which is desperately needed because as the United States of America comes upon its oil independence, its energy independence, what you were going to learn there was going to be desperately needed here in the States. You're in this program. You're connected with Chevron. Things are going great. And then the Lord puts a little twist and turn in your life. What happened? There was a big twist. So I was there, and I was studying along. And one of the things that I had looked for when I went up there, I, you know, I'm from Texas, was living in Louisiana. I didn't know how it was going to be up in Boston in terms of the Christian faith environment. And so I joined the Christian Fellowship out of hopes of finding some like-minded people on campus. And I actually found a group of seven guys, and we formed a Bible study. And that Bible study eventually became something we call our Board of Directors for Life. So one of the guys had this great idea. He said, you know, companies have boards, so why not men of God? Why don't we have boards for our own lives? And so let's form one. And so that group was amazing in so many ways, and we're still connected. We have a monthly phone call to try and support each other as husbands, as fathers, as employees, and speak wisdom into each other's lives and decisions. But the, the most relevant conversation for our chat today was about money. So as we were talking about money, what does it look like to steward the wealth we each hope to go earn? My friend Greg found a class at Harvard Divinity School. So again, we were at the business school. This is over at the Divinity School, so we cross-register for this course called God and Money. 
And so we're looking at the class and we're going, well, we love God and we love money. So I guess we should take this one for sure. Um, so we sign up and that was the class that God used to totally change our perspective. Now, a lot of people, when they think of Harvard today, they don't think of the Divinity School. We all know, I mean, anybody that knows much about the Ivy Leagues know that those schools were really founded to raise up ministers of the Christian faith. And yet they've strayed quite a long ways away from it. Yet you found a movement of Christ within Harvard and within the business school so that you went and you, you took the class at the at Harvard Divinity School. What So... What did you learn? I mean, I mean, that was kind of a little bit twist on you. You, you love God, you love money, so you figured you better take this class. What did you learn? So the class was an overview of the Christian scriptures and the theological tradition, going all the way back to, the obviously, the Word of God and everything that happened since in his body, which is the Church. And it was amazing, I guess, for, for both my friend Greg and I to, to think, you know, we grew up in the Church, typical, wonderful Christian families. We were taught to love God. We were taught to even be generous. And yet we've never really been exposed to what the Bible has to say about money. And we started learning there's over 2,000 verses on money and possessions and generosity and how we treat the poor, which is more than there are on heaven and hell. And it's the most commonly talked about subject in Jesus' parables. And so we're going, this is clearly important to God in a way that we never had paid attention to before. So we began to realize, I began to realize I'm a saver, um, which should have been obvious from my intro, but... I started realizing how much accumulating wealth was driving my sense of self-worth. If I had more money than anybody else my age, I thought I was okay in life. And Greg began to realize that he was a spender. He, he lived to give his 10% tithe and then spend the 90% however he wanted to and to live it up. And so we each started realizing these were not the most godly and not the most wholesome perspectives. And actually, there was a more joyful way to live. John, you said that you and your buddy Greg were in this class, and you realized about yourself that you were a saver, a ridiculous saver. And I'm sure if we had your wife on, she'd be able to describe that to some more detail. And that Greg was a spender. And if we brought on his family, they'd be able to describe the same thing. So you realize these two things, and you all of a sudden understood that the Scriptures had a lot to say about all this. Then what happened? That's right. And there's so many Scriptures. The one I'd love to point out to the fellow savers out there who are on this journey is the parable of the rich fool. And that's the one that gripped my heart. And Jesus talks about a guy who had barns. He wanted to store up a great harvest in bigger barns so that he could kick back and relax. And I'm kind of going, hey, that's my hero. That's kind of what I'm trying to do. But Jesus says that he was a fool because he was not generous toward God. He was storing up treasure for himself and not generous to the Lord. And I realize that's me, and I'm kind of living like a fool, even though the world says I'm doing everything the right way. So we were discovering all these scriptures, um, and what they have to say, and we started writing our term paper together. We said, what does it look like to live not as a spender and not as a saver, but as a servant, if we could call that a third mindset of money? And so we did a survey of over 200 Harvard MBA graduates who are Christians in various stages of their careers. So these people are ages age 30 to age 70, followers of Jesus, successful in the marketplace. And we asked, you know, how do you think about giving? What's your net worth? What's your income? What, how much do you give away every year? How do you think about your giving? And we found some amazing anomalies in that data set, and those are the people that we started characterizing as servants, people who truly think that all they have comes from God and who had a deep desire to serve God with their money. And so long story short, that it was supposed to be a 30-page paper. It ballooned to 80, it ballooned to 200, and then all of a sudden we had a book, and God just opened all the right doors at all the right moments. And so he was, he was so good in that, but that's the journey that we went on. And 
if we, if we have a chance in a minute, I'd love to share a couple of those stories of those servants we found. Well, a- absolutely. we got all kinds of time because when people hear faith stories, they're inspired by hearing other people's stories. And, and, and I think it's because you know, we're not done with your story yet, but go ahead and share a couple of those stories. In doing your survey, you said people from age 30 to people age 70, all graduates of Harvard in varying stages of their career. What were some of the stories that you heard? So it was unbelievable. We met, first of all, a family in their early 30s, and they had a decent home, but they had little kids, and they wanted to buy a nicer house. And so they had saved up a nice down payment to do that. And they each felt led by the Holy Spirit. They told us, you know, we just, we prayed about it. We decided to stay in our house and write that $100,000 check that we had saved up to our church to help them establish an orphanage in Mexico. And we're on the phone with these people going, you guys did what? You're crazy. And, and they said, no, we are on an adventure with God, and we wouldn't have it any other way. This is our walk of faith. It used to be that $5,000 was a scary, huge gift, and then in a certain phase of life it was ten, and now it's a hundred. So we're just praying for the day we can give away a million in a big chunk. And so that was one, and then we turned around, our heads are still spinning from that, and we meet a hedge fund guy, and he says, you know, guys, I make several million dollars per year, but I'm not that into saving money. And he goes, you know, could you explain that to us? And he says, well, here's the deal. Scripture is clear. We should be cautious when it comes to wealth. I know that my heart is desperately wicked. It's deceitful, and I can't trust it, and I'm no better than anybody else. I'd be lured into the wealth that I could accumulate. It would draw my heart away from God. But more importantly, I have so much fun giving it away. So, you know, I provide a nice life for my family. I've got good insurance policies. Not being irresponsible here, but I flush it all away every year. I give it all away. And so we met people like this whose primary attitude towards money was, how can I sow into God's kingdom? And it absolutely rocked our world. And how did it rock your world? I mean, you know, you're a guy on a train heading towards the moon, you know, in your early mid twenties, making almost a half a million dollars a year with the potential in the oil and gas industry, especially as that industry is exploding our country with the exciting news that we as a country can be energy independent, which is amazing because 30 years ago they said, we're, we're in deep trouble. We'll all be walking. So how, I mean, how did that change your life? What happened? So the main thing, as we, as we met, and those were two stories. There's a, a bunch more in the book. There's a bunch more we encountered. But we started thinking about what do these all have in common? And the common question that we were asking, which is how much do we need to give? That's kind of how we approach generosity. Is it a tithe or is it not a tithe? Are we under grace or are we under law? What, what is, how much do we need to give? But we were meeting people who seemed to be asking the inverse question, which was how much do I need to keep? And so all these people seem to be out there that we were finding saying, you know, I'm going to keep enough to provide a healthy, wonderful life for my family. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to live in poverty, so I'm going to provide for my own needs. But I'm going to answer that question of how much is enough. And if there's extra income, if there's extra net worth after that, that's all for God's kingdom. And so that was a total inversion of the question for us and began to challenge us. So, so Greg and his wife, Allison, me and my wife, Megan, we started praying about setting a limit on what would be an appropriate lifestyle to say no matter what God blesses us with, we're just going to say, you know what, this is enough because our primary mission, God's given us a mission, and we can financially invest in His cause, His kingdom, with the time we've been given on earth. And so that was the main change that it forced in our lives as we uh, we kind of saw the joy and the freedom and the purpose that people were living with and said, we, we want a piece of that. We want to see what it's like to live in the kind of faith that those people have in their generosity. Well, and you, so you set a, a cap on your status of living. You said, okay, here's the lifestyle we're going to live. We're, anything above that, we're just giving away. 
That's right. And the number actually was, a, we talk about it in the book, was $100,000 per year. There's no magic lifestyle in Scripture. That's a great lifestyle. That's actually fantastic. But the point was not to be lifestyle police, but to say, if God blesses us with millions, the point is not to go spend millions or hoard up and save millions, but rather to say, we're going to live a nice lifestyle, but the, the majority of that and all of the upside is going to be forgiving so that we can invest in God's kingdom. So the Lord shifted your paradigm from the pursuit of great wealth to the pursuit of great generosity. And did you ever go to work for Chevron? You know, that's the next part of the story. And God is so funny and so wonderful in how he does that for us. So, you know, Greg did go to work for the company he thought he was going to. That's a whole other story, but he was tremendously blessed financially and he was very generous. I thought I was going to work for Chevron, and then along comes this organization, Generous Giving, and they made an offer for me to join their team, and uh, clearly not the same pay grade. It's in ministry, and clearly not what I had in mind in going to business school. But um, the Lord revealed very clearly to me and to my wife, Megan, this is what I want you to do, and I need you to lay down your plans and come follow me. And so uh, we, we had that moment of wrestling, um, and we, it was, we really did discuss— um, we should just go do what we want to do and uh, run away from what God is telling us to do. We can still be Christians, but we don't have to follow him every single time. That was a real conversation we had in our faith journey, but we did. That didn't work out so good for Jonah. So I'm glad you guys had second thoughts on that one, because for Jonah, that didn't work so good. We had somebody point that out to us, and they said, I don't know if it's a whale or something else, but you might want to reconsider. And uh, so we did. We, we went to work for Generous Giving. It's a tremendous it's been a tremendous ministry to be a part of, to see these kinds of conversations like the one we're having right now about God's heart for generosity, how God's grace is connected to our opportunity to be generous. And it's the, the doorway to a joyful and life, a purpose and adventure. And so I've, I've loved being a part of the team there. And, and, you know, I think God drawing me into a lifestyle finish line was him preparing me for the transition to ministry and his goodness. So it wasn't too much of a shock when that call came. The cool part about you being moved into this movement is is you're a millennial, and most of the guys that are, most of the people that are leading in helping Christ followers understand what God has to say about money and possessions, they're all getting old. I mean, they're, they're, they're all, they are. They're all in their 50s, 60s, or 70s. You're a guy approaching 30, or maybe you're 30 now, that is you've you've seen it you've learned from you said you were mentored under howard dayton so you couldn't have gotten any better training because that guy hit crown financial ministries transformed our marriage for martha and i so it's fantastic because you're going to bring a different perspective to it because the people in your generation really want to see purpose and they they've seen they've seen the emptiness in the wealth because many of them grew up in households where they got everything they wanted except for time with their parents you know, it's been, it's been so much fun, and, and God has just drawn Greg and I right into the heart of this, and it's been tremendous to encounter other, other millennials, like you say, who say, you know, how do we do this now rather than later? And we've actually done, we may talk about this later, but the main thing Generous Giving does is overnight retreats, and they're called a journey of generosity. But we've done these journey of generosity retreats at, at Harvard Business School, at Wharton, at uh, we're going to Stanford Law School. So, you know, engaging with millennials on these really high-flying tracks, but to see people engage with the idea that it's not later that I want to be generous. Uh, there's this idea that 
you know, maybe I'll accumulate a few million, I'll get all my kids through college and married and everything will be happy and I'll have all this extra money and then I'll start giving. And I think what I've, I've seen in so many of my peers in my generation that I've talked to is, you know, that's fine and great, but I want to do something today. And clearly I have financial goals I've got to be conscious of, but I want to be generous now and trust God as my provider and as my father as I invest in his kingdom starting from right now, today. And, it, and that really goes back to that scriptural principle that we need to show that we're faithful in little before God will ever trust us to be faithful in much. He wants to see that we can walk alongside of him and be trustworthy with just the small little things, whether that's small in money or small in responsibilities. He doesn't give us a ton at the beginning, otherwise we would blow it. Is that what you think? I think that's so true. And, you know, there's a there's a young lawyer I met who actually— he got his, he did a clerkship, which if you don't know the legal profession, a very prestigious thing to go do out of law school, then went to a firm. He got his $50,000 clerkship bonus at the end of that time from the law firm. And he actually turned around and gave the entire amount away to a cause that he cared about. And he said, you know, I've, I've got a high earning career ahead of me. Yeah, I need a down payment. Yeah, I've got a family I'm trying to start who's married. But, you know, I want to be generous now, and I'd rather plant seeds of generosity than think about saving. I'm going to have to save, but let me just invest in God's kingdom first. And that kind of a faith journey to give just blows me away. John, I think before we go through the seven uh, biblical principles that you talk about in the book, let's just describe generosity. Because people think, I'm not, I think everybody's got a skewed view of generosity in today's world. I think that's so true, and we think of there's this generosity has become laden with guilt or laden with this sense of obligation, which I think is so divorced from what we see in Scripture, actually. And so if I could, uh, you know, propose a different definition potentially, but I'd say generosity is the free response of God's people to reflect God's grace to the world. And, you know, just, just like you shared at the opening of the program, Christmas is a celebration of the greatest gift ever in the history of the universe, which is that God himself became a human being to come and die for us. And there's nothing more generous than that. And we've received eternal salvation if we've trusted in Jesus. And so, you know, we've been bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. We have received the best gift ever imaginable. So what could we do but then turn around and be generous to the world around us? It kind of becomes our only natural response at that point. So say that again, the free response of God's people. Take that whole statement again. Say that again. Sure, I'd say it's the free response of God's people to reflect God's grace to the world around us. I love that. Wow, you got some good ones. These are tweetable moments right here. You need to be tweeting this stuff. It's incredible. So how does generosity impact culture? You know, I think it's, it's amazing how enriching it can be. There's a, a scripture in 1 Corinthians, I don't know the exact reference, but it's talking about generosity. And it says that men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Kind of a wordy segment, a wordy statement, but the obedience that accompanies our confession. So we all walk around and we say, you know, I confess Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, I'm, I'm a Christian. But generosity actually demonstrates our obedience to the gospel as we confess it. And so when people see our generosity, when people see, wow, Christians, those are the guys that give like crazy. Those are the guys that fund adoptions and fund the the work training programs for the homeless, and those are the people that are out there making huge donations to make a difference in the world, it becomes compelling, and, and they see the light, the salt and light that we can be to the world around. 
And so what you just did, it was a, tw- it was a shift there. Not only does it impact culture, but it impacts those people who are generous. I mean, that's what you just said there. I mean, it, it impacts the people who are generous. How does it change their lives? Oh, in tremendous ways. You know, something that we get to have a front row seat on by working at Generous Giving is this idea that, you know, it's the gift is for the giver. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And we see literally, it's going to sound like I'm making this up, but we see marriages restored. We see faith walks re- revitalized when, when people simply come to the place of seeing, you know, it's not that somebody is trying to squeeze money out of me. It's actually that I've been given an opportunity to reflect the nature of God to the world with the money I have, it, it brings people's faith journey to life in a new way. I, that, I love those words. You're taking my breath away. I mean, it's just so fantastic. And to have that understanding at your age, it took me so many years to understand that. And, and really, as Christ followers, a lot of a lot of churches don't teach this because they get criticized for talking about money. Yet we're not talking about money here. We're talking about a heart condition, not a wallet condition. Because really, when you talk about somebody's heart being transformed by Christ, generosity naturally outflows out of that transformed heart, doesn't it? That's so true. And it actually becomes relevant because of that heart transformation issue. It it, it can be the guy with $100 million, and it can be the guy with $100. It really is agnostic to the level of wealth somebody has, and it's much more about how can I reflect the gospel, the grace that I've received with whatever I've been given, and maybe a little, maybe a lot, but that's my opportunity to show God's love to the world. I want to take a break from talking about your book and jump to your ministry, and then we'll go back to those seven points within the book, because I really want to draw attention to Generous Giving, the ministry, which people can find out more about online at generousgiving.org, generousgiving.org. What is that organization all about, and what are these Journey of Generosity events that you were talking about? Sure. So Generous Giving is um, a tremendous organization. I've been a part of it for a year and a half now since finishing my MBA, but I would say that we exist, uh, our mission statement is actually this, to spread um, the biblical message of generosity in order to grow generous givers among those entrusted with much. So we're, we're a bit of a nuanced ministry, but we exist to spread biblical generosity, this message that, you know, it's not about guilt, it's not about duty, it's not about you better get in your tithes because otherwise you're a bad Christian. It's much more about how can you, as someone who's been blessed with much, step into the life of purpose and joy. Scripture says the life that is truly life that God has mapped out for you as someone who's been called to that. So that's our message, and we do it primarily through two different ways. One is a large annual conference called the Celebration of Generosity, but even more central than that is these overnight retreats called the Journey of Generosity. So people can find that on our website, again, generousgiving.org. But the Journey of Generosity is an overnight retreat. It's peer-focused, and so people will get a group of friends together, 12 to 20 people, overnight, watching video stories of very generous families, reflecting on scriptures, setting aside quiet time to just unplug and listen to the Holy Spirit and say, what's my next step in my own personal journey of generosity to become more like Jesus in this area? Really what you're describing is such an oxymoron. People are going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're saying that generosity is a step into a life of purpose and joy, yet people are thinking, but if I give away everything I have, I'm going to be miserable. Yet that isn't true. It is so true. And, you know, we, we have, uh, we've observed that time and again, that it's um, those who, it's this paradox, those who 
give, receive. And by grasping, we lose. And so, um, you know, especially in the Christian walk where, where Christ is inviting us to step into a journey of faith with him and to say, who's my provider? Is it my 401k being large enough? Or is it Christ who I'm in a daily walk with as I try to live on mission for him in the world? And it, it is, but that's a, that's a journey, learning to trust in when things don't seem to make sense. Because normally when God calls you to do something, it's usually way bigger than you can accomplish on your own. It's usually way outside of the box that we've put God in. And when we get to that spot, it, we're like, whoa, wait a minute, this is going to take, this causes me to have a crisis of belief to take something from experiencing God, and we have to adjust where we're going in order to really understand what that is all about. This generosity, when you see people embrace what Christ intended in generosity, which he demonstrated the ultimate generosity, when you see, see people embrace generosity, how do their lives change? You know, I can just tell you that it, it brings joy, purpose, and freedom. And uh, one of my favorite my favorite few days of the year are the Celebration of Generosity, our, our annual conference. I'm telling you, you're walking around, and it's 500 really generous people, business leaders, uh, your kind of people, right, Run, and I work for him, business leaders, marketplace leaders who are radically generous and who want to become more generous. So why else would they have shown up at this conference? And they're all walking around, and you just hear these stories of purpose. You hear about the way they're leaning in, and, and nobody's life is perfect. So there's all kinds of heartache. There's things going on on the side. I mean, it, there's no fairy tales out there. This is real life. But when we do step in and say, you know, in the midst of real life, in the midst of the challenges I'm facing, I want to do something meaningful for the Lord. Uh, gosh, it just it brings a new dimension, and it's an amazing thing to see. So let's now jump back to the book. If people want to get involved with your organization, go through some of these trainings. These are very specific, two different events, the Journey of Generosity event and the annual conference. They can find out more online at generousgiving.org. They want to find out more about your book. It's very simple, godandmoney.net, godandmoney.net. Let's talk about these seven principles. I'm going to read them off real quickly, and then we, you can kind of tag through them in the, in, a, in the four minutes we have left in this segment. Everything is God's, not ours. Our wealth should be used for God's purposes. Wealth is like dynamite, good and bad. Worldly wealth is fleeting. Heavenly treasure is eternal. Giving generously generously to the poor is a moral duty. Giving should flow naturally from our hearts. And giving generously breaks the power of money on us, that freedom that you're talking about. Absolutely. You know, just a couple points here. You know, everything is God's, not ours. I mentioned this earlier, but... This is something that so many people say, but so many others, maybe including myself, I'm on this journey, but do I really, really, really believe that? Uh, because you, you think about, you know, if you own a home, think about your home. You know, it's, it's my home. I have a house. It's my house. But what if I start to say it's God's house? What does that actually mean? Okay, it's how would God want me to use his house that he's letting me live in and raise my family in? And that actually changes my perspective. Wow, you know, I haven't had anybody stay with me in a while. I haven't hosted many events where I'm letting the gospel shine through in a while, and you go, man, if maybe God would want his house to be used a little more intentionally than I'm using what I think of as my house. And so that, that switch can be a huge deal in terms of thinking about not only our financial giving, but our possessions and how we're putting them to work in the world. And I'll just stepping through a couple more of these, you know, worldly wealth is fleeting, heavenly wealth is eternal. Randy Alcorn, one of my heroes, has a great illustration in a little book he wrote called The Treasure Principle. Great. And he book. talks about 
great book. And he, you can read it in a couple hours, too. It's a quick one. And this analogy is, you know, imagine you're a Confederate soldier, and you know it's nearing the end of the Civil War. You have Confederate currency, and you're just hoarding it up. You know the war is ending, and so you're just stockpiling thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of Confederate currency in your basement. And he talks about how foolish that is because you go, well, the war's about to end. It's, everything's going to go back to the United States dollar. If you were smart, you'd keep just enough to get by, and you'd start trying to convert them to the currency that you know would last. And he says, that's kind of like the world we live in now. This life is eternal. We can't take anything with us. We all know that to be true. And so if we're stockpiling, 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 so we can die with a lot, what what are we doing? And, uh, you know, we can actually send it on ahead by making investments in eternity. Jesus talks about storing up treasure in heaven where uh, moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. So I love Randy's point about heavenly treasure is eternal and we can send it on ahead. So that's, that's another one that's talk been impactful in my own journey. Talk about the freedom. Giving generously breaks the power of money on us. Most people say, Ah, I'm fine. I'm good. Money doesn't control me. But really what you're saying, that generosity is a step into a life of purpose and joy and freedom. What do you mean? You know, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And uh, I think that's so true. So if we're saving up, this is me, right? Before, before business school, I'm saving up tens of thousands of dollars per year in my early 20s. And my treasure is in early retirement. And I tell you, every day I was thinking about where are my balances, how much wealth have I accumulated. I mean, that's where my treasure was going. That's where my heart was. Greg was spending lots of money on European vacations and great restaurants, and that's where his heart was. He was planning his next vacation always. And so these people that we met who are investing in God's kingdom, it's incredible to see they walk around thinking about how can I bless the world on behalf of the gospel. They're living on mission. So when we align our dollars, with where we say we want our hearts to be, which is to follow Christ, if we confess Him as Lord and Savior, uh, we put our treasure there, and then our hearts follow, and it actually opens up a whole new world of discipleship. That learning to be content thing was one of the most powerful things I learned from Crown Financial Ministries, Ephesians four eleven through 13. But it's a learned thing, and by giving generously, it really does break that hold. That's what the whole point is behind tithing. Tithing breaks that hold on us because we think we got to have it all, and God says, nope, you got to trust me with that last 10%. I want it so that your heart won't be beholden to your money. John, I think probably the most powerful thing that we've talked about today is the transforming power that generosity has not only on our culture, but on the people that experience it. And inside your book, God and Money, you have lots of stories about things like that, right? That's right. You know, a couple that I shared earlier and many, many more, it, it is that is the most striking thing about the research project that my friend Greg and I thought would just be a term paper and suddenly end up becoming a book over the next year following the term paper. But we found these people who just were living lives of so much adventure and purpose. Uh, they truly had an eternal mindset. They were in connection with the Holy Spirit as they walked out their generosity, and that was, that was compelling, and we wanted a piece of it. So we, we have tried to become more generous, modeling our, our lives after those people that we met. The book is God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. I'd love to invite you to call into the studio line now at 877-943-9673, 877-943-9673, and get a copy today. It is going to allow the Lord to transform your life by what you're learning. So 
John, you gave up a job that was going to potentially pay you almost a half a million dollars a year. You and your bride moved to the middle of Florida where it's a little hot here, a little uncomfortable in the middle of summer. The life took a lot of turns. Any regrets? Oh, that's such a great question. The the short answer is no, no regrets. But here, the, the longer answer is this, that, you know, we cried a lot of tears when God called us in a different direction than what we had planned for our lives. And, and those tears were definitely not the last ones that we've you know, cried in this discipleship journey. And so it has been truly a challenge to take what we thought were our best plans and then lay them down and say, God, you, it seems like you have something else in mind and we're going to follow you. And so the struggle is, is certainly there. And it pops up over and over again as where's our flesh, where's our discipleship under Jesus. But he's been faithful and he's been good. And so I, would, I wouldn't trade it for anything and the closeness that we've developed with him over this last year and a half. So are you saying that the decision to be generous, the decision to lead this radical lifestyle was not a one and done, that you've had to revisit this? Not a one and done. Um, and, and that's been, it's a sanctification journey. And I can tell you that my, I feel my own maturity changing. Um, you know, it's like an iceberg, but you can see that iceberg move a couple of feet each day. Um, but God, God has been so faithful um, to, to preserve Megan and I as we've been on this journey together. But, um, it has required, you know, steady commitment to live differently, and um, we've been so happy to do it, but also just um, trusting in Him for the strength to continue as well. How many of your friends make comments like, are you guys nuts? I mean, what are you thinking? <laughs> we heard a lot of that. You know, um, it's, it's, uh, I think the grass is always greener, so a lot of guys who are making, killing it in the business world, representing Christ in the marketplace, are like, man, I wish I had a meaningful job like you, and it's easy for Megan and I being in ministry now to go, man, I wish we had a, a quote-unquote real job out in the marketplace making a ton of money and all that. And so what we've had to learn is that contentment piece that you mentioned earlier, which is to say, you know, God has called us where we are, and it's truly amazing, uh, the, the relationships, the community, and so let's celebrate and enjoy and live in the midst of that and what He has done. But uh, it's, it's uh, easier to say than to do, but we have, um, we've been on that journey together. I agree, but thank God you've got a great bride along your side. Here's the last question for today. What's next for you and Megan and your family in this journey, besides Christmas right around the corner? Christmas right around the corner, but, you know, I think there's a, uh, there's a forthcoming book by another one of my heroes, Pastor Jeff Mannion, and I got an advanced copy of it. I think it's called, uh, it's called Think Big, Dream Small, or something like that. Dream Big, Start Small. Um, but it's coming out in January. All that to say, he talks about steady faithfulness. And a life of steady faithfulness is one that leads to tremendous impact. And so, you know, thinking about where God has placed me at Generous Giving, this amazing organization, I serve with so many great people in that ministry um, that I get to work with. And I just think that's where I am. You know, until God calls me in a different direction, steady faithfulness, let's see where this goes uh, many years ahead, potentially. But I just love having conversations with people about God's heart for generosity, about how living generously can transform the way we engage with the world around us. Mm. John Cortinez, thanks so much for being on iWork for him today. Thanks so much for your book and for being faithful. I look forward to our next time we're on air. Thanks so much. All right. Merry Christmas. Hey, if you, you bet. Merry Christmas to you, too. If you want to find out more about John Cortinez and his book that he wrote with Greg Baumer, get a copy of his book online at godandmoney.net, godandmoney.net. Or maybe you were intrigued to find out more about this organization called Generous Giving and what they teach about. Find them online at generousgiving.org. 
I think it's as we walk with the Lord, we start to realize that there's a whole lot more to life than what we ever thought. The world tends to offer all of these, I don't know, paper wishes, things that are just, that, that would burn up instantaneously in a flame, but generosity, as, as John said, we, it steps us into a life of purpose, joy, and freedom. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower. My workplace, it's my mission field. And ultimately, I work for him.